beliefs and in practice. The Word of God is our final authority. So what the Bible says in its, in its context and rightly understood is our final authority. Not our emotions, not our traditions, but the Word of God is our final authority for all things in life, deed, practice, and truth. And this is what Paul does as he begins. We see that Paul intentionally, having the Bible as his final authority, he begins in verse 1 and 2 by intentionally targeting those who have a biblical background. He intentionally targets them first when he comes to town. Let's read together verse 1 and 2 from the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one from the back of the pew in front of you. 1 and 2, read as this, Acts chapter 17. And now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so three weeks period, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So where does Paul go first? Does he go sightseeing? Does he check out the architecture? He goes to the synagogue. Why does he go to the synagogue first? Well, I'm glad you asked. I know that's what you're wondering. Why does he go to the synagogue? Let me give you some history so we can understand why Paul specifically targeted the synagogues. And I think this is very significant for us to understand. We hear about the synagogues, but what were the synagogues? So a couple hundred years before Jesus came, as the Jews began spreading out or were distanced from the temple, their life began to spread out from the temple. So in any community that had any sizable Jewish population, they would have a synagogue, which was kind of like a church, if you will. And a couple applications that you and I need to keep in mind with this. So they would gather together, and a couple major changes happened. One of the changes was this. Instead of life being centered around temple sacrifices on a regular basis, and the Levitical priests that would make those sacrifices, a lot of the authority and the practice of how they did ministry and life as a weekly routine was shifted to scribes. And scribes were charged as they would read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. As they would read the Torah, they would read these books, and then the scribe would give some commentary on it, kind of like a sermon a little bit. And so the scribes were experts in the books of the law, and they would study them, and then they would expound on them. They'd have corporate prayer together, but also, the Jewish synagogues were also places of consequence. So if there was a judicial situation, if there was a conflict that you happened, we wouldn't go to necessarily the governing authorities. We would go to church. We would go to the Jewish synagogue. This is where our conflict would be resolved. Keep that in mind for what we're going to see later in the story. So where does Paul go? He goes where? To the synagogue. Say it with me. Where does he go? He goes to the yeah, I sound good. That was impressive. He goes to the synagogue. In John chapter 4, Jesus gathers his disciples and he tells them what? Pray that the Lord would raise up harvesters. For the fields are white for harvest, but the workers, they are few. In the book of Acts, we see exactly what the harvest is. Why are the fields white for harvest? Because God in His good sovereignty has sprinkled around synagogues in which they've been studying the Word of God. And so where does Paul go? Where do the missionaries in the book of Acts go as they spread out? Where do they first go? 
They go to the synagogues. What do they teach them? They teach them how Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that, that, that all the yeses of Scripture are found in Him. And so you have people that are, have an authority, they have a respect, and they have a submission to the Word of God. And then all that's waiting is like a match. As Paul comes in, that was a terrible snap. And the, the Paul comes in, counterproductive when you can't snap, I should not snap. Paul comes in, and what does he do? Paul comes in and he says, listen, Jesus is the Messiah. It all points to Jesus. He targets people that have a commitment to the Word of God. You and I should not be ashamed to live in the Bible Belt. But I believe Paul would tell us exactly that, that you and I have been given a God-given opportunity to target people that claim to have a commitment to the Word of God. So practically, what does that look for us? How can you use this piece of information and how you engage people that claim to have a commitment to the Word of God? Here it is. I put it actually in your bulletin as well. I already wrote it out for you. Every one of us has people in my life, I myself included. I've had family in my life that have grown up, committed to the church, committed to the Bible, and yet have drifted. Maybe you do too. And I believe one of the most healthy things that you and I can do is to ask them the basic question, what do you think about the Bible? Do you believe it's the final authority for all of life, deed, and truth? Do you believe the Bible is perfectly true? Why do I think you should ask somebody that question? Here's why. Because you make them confess what they truly believe right now. You make them confess what they truly believe right now. This is one of the most helpful questions you can ever ask. It's not interrogative. It's not, it's not an offensive question. It's an honest question. If you have friends or neighbors that, that, that were committed to church or gathering with the body of Christ, and yet they have no real, maybe consistent practice today, it's just to ask them that question. Maybe a friend that you grew up with. Just to ask them, can I ask you a question? What, what do you think about the Bible today? What do you think about the Bible today? Because one of the worst things that can happen is they stay in this place of this gray area where they, they, they have the Christian t-shirt. In our, in our town, they have the wood cross in their yard. You know what I'm talking about. And yet, functionally, they don't believe the Bible is true. And so it allows them the opportunity to probably confess something they haven't thought about since they were little kids. And that's to say what they truly believe about the Word of God. And it is a powerful thing. I've sat across from a coffee table from a dear, dear deep friend and also dear deep family member that they've articulated, I don't think it's true. And that's a hard conversation to have, but it is a joyful conversation to have. Do you know why? Because now we know how to go forward. Do you know what I'm saying? Now we don't have to play games. Now we know where our conversations want to pick up from. So use this as a question, a very practical question. So, so Paul intentionally targets those that have a commitment to the Bible, but secondly, he, Paul's intentions were to persuade those to commit themselves to Jesus the Christ. He doesn't just go to the synagogue to have a great Bible study. Right? He's not just there for the potluck, which I'm sure that was a benefit, and you should also come to the potluck today if you don't have plans. It's going to be a great time. 
But let's look in three, 3 and 4. Paul's intentions were to persuade others to commit themselves to Jesus as the Christ. Remember Christ and Messiah, it's the same word, just two different languages. So you could say you're bilingual technically, Christ and Messiah, you got both there. That one went over much worse than I thought it would. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the sent one, the anointed one of God. And that's Paul's intentions is to get people to understand this and to commit themselves to Christ. So look what he says in verse 3 and 4. Look what it says. It says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to do what? To suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few Leading women. Paul's intentional study of the Word was not wasted. See, the Old Testament, the first 70% of our Bibles, they're not wasted. We call it the Old Testament, but don't make a mistake of saying, well then, well, I guess it's not true or it's not useful. No. See, Paul uses the Scriptures, the Word of God, which is the Old Testament, and he says this Old Testament, look, it points forward to Christ. It points forward to Jesus. He's our perfect prophet. He's our perfect king. He is the Messiah of God. And we see this in, in the book of Luke when he's walking on the road to Emmaus with these two men and he's walking with them and he's explaining to them from the law and the prophets and the Psalms how those things must be satisfied and how Jesus fulfilled them. How many days, do you remember, did he reason in the synagogues with them? Three synagogue days. Three full days. Three Sabbaths which equated out to possibly three full weeks of conversations. How much content do you and I get here about those conversations in verse 3? One verse. We get a one-verse summary of what Paul would have told these Jewish men and women and, and God-fearing ethnic Greeks that had come into the fold. He tells them this basic message, two parts. Part number one, that the Christ must suffer. Part number two, that Jesus arose from the dead. Part number one, why is that important to catch? Part number one, that the Christ must suffer. Put ourselves in that situation. What do you think the, the skeptical Jews or, or Romans even would, would argue? If Jesus is the Messiah and he's supposed to overthrow Rome and the governing authorities, Hard to do because I'm pretty sure he suffered, was crucified, and died. So there's no way Jesus was really the Messiah. Can't you imagine that conversation happening? So does Paul avoid it? You ever avoided something you didn't really want to talk about? You knew it was a weakness in your argument? He doesn't avoid it. He leans into it because why? Because the Scriptures mandated this. When Jesus came and he was crucified and died and suffered, that wasn't an accident. That was a fulfillment of God's promise in the Word. And that's what he teaches. The Christ must suffer, but the story doesn't end there, does it? In a while, you and I are going to observe the Lord's Supper. And we don't celebrate the broken body and spilt blood of one who is still in the tomb, do we? Yes, we look back and we memorialize and remember what Christ did for us. But we also do so looking forward. Because we will observe this until the Lord comes again. Why can our Lord come again? Because He didn't stay dead. He suffered, His blood was spilled, and His body was broken for us. 
But one day we will eat with him again for the marriage supper with the Lamb. And that's what Paul says. This Jesus had to suffer and he had to raise and he did raise. And you should convert and follow him because he is the true Messiah. There is hope in no one else. There's no Messiah coming later. Jesus is the only Messiah. He is your only hope. He is salvation. Do you know Jesus? Question number two. I gave you two practical questions. I inserted them in your bulletin. Question number one, basically, what do you believe about the Bible? Question number two, who do you believe Jesus is? What is your relationship with Christ? How is your relationship? I had the sweet joy of being a part of family this week and and presenting the gospel and letting the Word of God engage us and minister to us. But you don't understand the difference in, in leading a funeral of somebody who has an active faith, confessing faith, and part of local church fellowship and officiating a funeral in which someone is not actively abiding in a confession of faith in Christ. The difference in what goes through your mind as you write both of those sermons for the funeral is much different. And you and I have been burdened by God placing people around us, family members and friends, who do have a stance upon Christ. And what you and I must do, we must gain the courage to ask them, Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Can you tell me? If you do, what does that look like? If you don't, can I help? Those two very basic questions can by God's grace, like an EKG, revive, revive by God's goodness, a very still pulse. Paul's intentions were to persuade others to commit their lives to Christ. The word that God has given us, it is sufficient for us, and his word is good. So first, the word is our final authority when engaging a closed-minded people. And secondly, the same gospel message that can soften and save a closed-minded people, note that it may also harden and provoke them. The same gospel message... It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who will believe. At the very same time, those that will not receive it, it may harden them even further and provoke them to violent actions. The call to come to Christ is not a call to have our best life now. The call to come to Christ is to have Christ. Catch that. The call to come to Christ is to have Christ. The call to come to Christ isn't to have a better marriage. It's not to have better kids. It's not to have a happier retirement. The call to come to Christ is to receive who? Christ. Christ is the ends. Christ is the prize. If you and I don't believe that, if we come to Christ trying to use Him for something else, what will happen when we don't have that? We'll think, I'm done with Christ. If you come to Christ thinking my life will be easy or I'll become healthy, what will happen when the Lord in His sovereignty allows sickness to come into your life? You'll think what? Either I'm doing it wrong or Christ really isn't real. 
We come to Christ for Christ. He promises to never leave us or never forsake us. And that all the things that come into our life because we love Christ will happen for our good. And what is our good in Romans 8? It's to shapen us into the image of Christ. I believe that same thing is true for us as a church family. But the Lord will not allow us to endure suffering or hardship that will not shapen us into more the body and image of Christ, the bride. As a body, every week, some of us gather with heavy hearts. And every week, some of us gather with joyful spirits. And other weeks, some of us gather just needing coffee. But in all those areas, the Lord is sufficient for us. For we have a perfect Savior who will never leave us and He will never forsake us. Come to Christ for Christ. So this message is provided. And what does it do? The individual's who ultimately don't trust in Christ, we see that their rejection reveals their sinful motives. Their sinful motives for what? For control. Those that don't come to Christ, the call for somebody to turn and trust in Christ is a call for them to give up control over their life. Jesus Christ commands you and I to give up control over our lives. It comes down to control, doesn't it? And so, what does the text say? Look at the very beginning of verse 5. Five little words. So this happens, the Gospels preach, the news of Christ's suffering and resurrection. In verse 5, what's the response? But the Jews were jealous. They were filled with jealousy. Literally, to be filled with intense negative feelings or others' achievements or success. I'm not going to make you turn there, but write down Acts chapter 7, verse 9, if you're taking notes this morning. Acts chapter 7, verse 9. The same word used for jealousy is quoted by Stephen, the deacon who's giving this sermon before he's murdered. He gives the longest sermon recorded for us in the Bible, in the New Testament. Here he is, he's giving this sermon, he's about to die, but he speaks about, in Genesis, Joseph's brothers being moved to jealousy and wanting to kill their brother Joseph. That word jealousy, that's the same word right here in this verse. The Jews felt jealousy because their life was beginning to be flipped upside down. You know what I'm saying? Jealousy. The issue is not theology for them. I guess in some way it is. The issue is ultimately control. The biggest threat of the call for people to turn and trust in Christ is a call over surrendering control of your life to Jesus to Jesus. And they respond in this way very negatively. Now can you imagine ever being in a situation, I know this is hard, but can you imagine ever being in a situation where you're so jealous that you want bad things to happen to the other person? I know, you're like, I don't know if I get my mind around that, Brent. I'm way too holy for that. Uh, Don't even say it. I've asked you people what your favorite sports teams are, and you all take it serious. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, if you made it to the Q&A when y'all called me to be your, your pastor, remember that early April? If you were there, I'm not going to ask you to identify yourself. And I can't remember who the person was, but Keith asked me the question, do you prefer Dallas or Houston football team? And I said the Kansas City Chiefs. And there was an older woman in the front that booed me with her hands cupped. <laughs> I had never seen anyone respond like that, but she booed me to my face. 
right, right here in my face, she booed me. So yeah, I, can, I think we can get our mind around being jealous and hoping we get good and other people get bad. You know what I'm saying? I think we can identify with that. And that's how these people that don't trust in Christ are ultimately responding. They desire for difficulties to happen for the Jewish people. So here's what they do. They end up resorting to an ends justifies the means mentality. It's one that looks like this. They use emotions to manipulate the masses. And what that means in short is this. Their desire, they're rationalizing and thinking the best thing for us is if these guys are silent. So what are we going to do? They resort to very unbiblical means, even though these people were to be experts in the first five books of the Bible, and the Word of God, what do they do? They resort to unbiblical means. You and I never underestimate how desperately you and I, even as followers of Christ, need to be reminded of the Word of God. Because the Word of God, what's it do? Like tilling up weeds in our heart constantly massaging the areas where you and I are constantly trying to grab control back from God. We need the Word of God regularly. But look what it says, picking up in verse 5, midway through 5 and 6. It says, In taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, likely the guy that was housing Paul and Silas, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, they have come here also. So the mob is thirsty. Right? That's usually the case. They're, they're thirsty for violence. There's not very many rational, calm mobs. I think it's kind of the job qualification for being a mob. Are you, are you rational? You're not qualified. And these Jewish leaders, they gather this mob and they set a spark on the kindling that is their rage. And they can't find Paul, and they can't find Silas, so they go for the host of Paul and Silas, Jason. And they gather him, and they drag him, and what is the primary claim of attack they give him? You see that? What do they claim towards the very end verse 6? These men, they have turned the world upside down, and now they're here too. They've turned the world upside down. That's a right observation for what Christ can do in our life, isn't it? He can turn your world upside down. That's an admission that Christ can turn your world what is truly right side up. This is the confession of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That I was going this way. The Lord got a hold of my heart. And what I thought was turning me upside down in reality was turning me right side up. Can't you praise God that he's not, doing that with, not done doing that with each of us? Can't you praise God that he's got a multitude of people in this community that he's going to turn their life upside down. Do you believe our God is in that business? Some of you that are grandparents need to hear those words. If you have wayward children, God is in the business of turning people's world upside down. Never underestimate the means and the way that he can do so. He is good. And he's in the business of turning worlds upside down. So they use emotions to try to manipulate the masses. They're loud and they're shouting. But also their end goal, we see it in verse 7-9, is to use the authorities to mute the messengers, verses 7 and 9, through 9. It says, and Jason has received them. Here's the continued accusation. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that here is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities, they were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Jesus, there is another king. And their admonition is very clear. 
Now, you remember what I told you at the very beginning about synagogues? Do you remember where their own conflict is supposed to be settled at? In the synagogue. But what do they do? They drag them before the ruling authorities, the governing authorities. And what argument, how did the Jewish people generally feel about Rome? Oppressed? Do they like it? No. But what do they do? They appeal towards it because their goal is to silence them. Now, in their goal to silence them, will they be successful? The answer is no. They will never be successful. This is the part in the sermon where I speak about how I, there was a time that I was not mute on the gospel. But I've got news for you. You've called a pastor who has had many times in his life when he has been silent with family and friends and opportunities to present the gospel. Surprise. Now, there's times that I've shared the gospel. People have come to Christ, family members and friends alike. But there's times where the pressure and the fear of saying something because I don't want to lose that relationship and that friendship have been so great that my mouth was silent. No governing authorities had to get involved to mute me because my own pride and my own control over my social dynamic muted myself. Have you ever been there? I think it's true that God gives us relationships to be able to present the gospel through, but I also know this is true, that you and I can take what is to be a bridge for sharing the gospel as a friendship, and we can turn it into a barrier if we wait too long. Because we begin to so fear losing that relationship that we no longer care to convert them or to see them come to Christ. Now, if you're like me, I'm going to give you a little ten-word saying or statement in which you don't have to say, well, I can't share the gospel with that person any longer. Here's what I'd encourage you to say. Hey, would it be all right if we talked about my faith sometime? I know I haven't brought it up before, but can I talk to you about my faith? Hey, I, I don't think I've ever told you about my church. Can I tell you about my church sometime? And what you do is you present an opportunity for them to say yes or no. But because you have a relationship, it's almost always going to be yes. And what you've done is you've set the stage to have that conversation planned and expected on a next date. And you set the time. Oh, that'd be great. Hey, when you want to get coffee then, and we'll talk about it, and I can share it with you. The Lord is good. What are your next steps? Our next steps, I have two very basic questions, or two very basic statements. The king's messengers are responsible for faithful gospel proclamation. And the king of the message is responsible for fruitful gospel persuasion. Let's look at that again, the last three words of each. Faithful gospel proclamation is our job. If you're a Christian, it's your job. It's our job to, to faithfully present the gospel. And it's the Lord's job to what? To bring about fruitful persuasion. Fruitful persuasion. The next step for each of us is I believe God has given us people in our lives to speak Christ to. Who that person is for each of us will be different. Pray about it this week. Write down their names. And look for an opportunity to share that with them. Bring that up in a conversation. And trust that God is in the business of fruitful multiplication, not us. We're in the position of faithful proclamation. 
What are your next steps this week? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your words are true. We thank you, God, that you minister to us in every season of life. We thank you, God, that we are preserved in you, that you've given us your spirit to walk according to your word. We thank you that we've been adopted through Christ. God, as we, as we look at this text, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would convict us this week, that you would give us insights and wisdom and, and who to speak to and how to speak to them that you would give us boldness as we go through our daily lives to point people to you. Father, we are not ashamed of Christ. And we thank you that it's your responsibility to bring forth a fruitful multiplication of your disciples here in Nacogdoches and to the ends of the world. And because of that, Father, we faithfully proclaim the gospel to all people. For we desire to not be ashamed, but we are messengers of your goodness and your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name. And everyone said together. Yeah.